John 2 says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots there, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And Father, we <clears throat> just humbly ask now for just the help of your Holy Spirit. We want to continue to worship, Lord, and to honor you and glorify you. And in this moment, Lord, we want to do it now by just submitting our hearts to the authority of your inspired word that we would hear you speak to us, that your word would be what you promised profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that as men and women of God, we could be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Lord, give us an ear to hear what your spirit wants to say to this part of your church and through this particular portion of your word. Every intent behind the reason you recorded it Lord, may we receive that and even that daily, momentary, timely word and season as well in this hour of how your spirit would take it and speak it to our hearts personally. Speak to us and teach us by your spirit's ministry, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, one thing that's a constant guarantee in this life, even with the absolute best of intentions and efforts on our end humanly, is that sometimes problems are going to arise. And in fact, sometimes problems are going to arise that are going to certainly need help to be resolved. But the wonderful thing here this morning is this, is that our Lord Jesus is a wonderful problem solver. Would you agree with that? He's a wonderful problem solver. Whether you take the biggest picture of how Jesus solved this huge problem of the sin of the whole world by his life and death and resurrection, or whether it just be the reality of how Jesus can also solve problematic situations of just everyday life in a fallen and sinful world, Jesus is a great problem solver. And everything that Jesus does by his wisdom and by his power, the other great thing is this, he does really, really, really well. Really well, in such a way whereby when the Lord begins to work, many times, like in our story here, it leaves people kind of surprised and impressed in such a way where they kind of go, wow, th this is better than anything I ever expected. 
I didn't think that it could actually end up being this well. And the result is people are then prompted, like in our story here as well, to believe in Jesus all the more as the response of seeing what he does and how he works and how he solves problems. And I think that's what our text is really driving home to us as we look at it together this morning. Now, before we jump in and begin to unpack it line by line, I want to make an overall observation or two from our passage because of all the places and of all the ways, if you think about, that Jesus could have began the public manifestation now of his messianic ministry showing his power and his miraculous ability of all the ways that could have began we get here according to verse 11 the first recorded miracle or sign of Jesus taking place and of all the ways he could have done it the first miracle of Jesus was at a wedding at an occasion where they're celebrating the love of a man and woman now certainly this miracle did solve a problem it met a need it showed the miraculous power of Jesus absolutely but it also if we want to be honest increased the enjoyment of people who were there that day celebrating if you would just the goodness of God celebrating the blessings that God has given in just everyday life the love of a man and woman in a marriage relationship the joy the the laughter the pleasure that goes along with something like a, a marriage feast and celebration and I think Jesus doing this here endorsed as well by his presence and by his power at work at this event that God honors the marriage covenant between a man and a woman because of all places that Jesus could have done his first miracle he dignifies this wedding by his presence and his power at work there and making this the first occasion that his glory and miraculous power is demonstrated to some extent so look with me let's begin to look at it together verse 1 it says now on the third day <clears throat> excuse me there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there now, both Jesus and his disciples, it says, were also invited to that wedding. So our story opens with this wedding celebration in Jewish culture. We're told from verse 1 and 2 that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. We're told that Jesus himself is there at this wedding, as well as the few disciples that we saw in chapter 1 that he's began to call to himself to begin to follow him, all there for this celebration. Now, Cana, mentioned there in verse 1, Cana of Galilee, the traditional site of Cana is about five miles away from Nazareth and again we know Nazareth was the hometown where Jesus grew up remember our last few verses of chapter one Philip Nathaniel struggled with the concept can anything possibly good come out of Nazareth which was where Jesus the Messiah was basically raised and brought up in that area so Cana is about five miles away from what you want to say the hometown of Jesus where he grew up and where he and his mother Mary and other brothers and sisters lived at uh, so it's very likely we can't be dogmatic but very very likely that uh, this wedding couple that's celebrating in Cana here is maybe the extended family or friends of Jesus's biological family on earth and because it's nearby they're invited to the celebration and weddings keep in mind uh, in that culture especially were quite a festive occasion I mean you're talking a pretty big deal when a wedding would take place in a town or a village or city in that day the whole community would be aware and involved 
Uh, again, keep in mind, this is a day and age, unlike today, where there are so many forms of entertainment to go do something fun and available uh, to be preoccupied with. In that day, a wedding was a major event. I mean, this was major entertainment. I mean, this was the talk of the town and, and something that a whole community would in many ways be involved with. It would be the buzz that everybody was talking about, that there's a wedding upcoming and this incredible celebration. Uh, and, and in many ways, people, a lot of people in the town would be participating. The, there would be people parading through the streets as the you know, bridal party would go through the process that they did. And wedding feasts as well lasted up to a week long. Uh, so you're talking about getting inviting to a wedding. That was a commitment uh, when you went to a wedding celebration. But it was that big of a deal. Wedding was that, uh, a wedding was that highly esteemed. And it was that prominent of an event that they would celebrate. Again, in this day, couples didn't go away, per se, on honeymoons for a week. Instead, uh, guests and those who were invited would just celebrate and basically party with them in a festive way for an entire week. Well, we're told here in our text that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. And then verse 2 says that as well, both Jesus and his disciples at this point were invited to that particular wedding. Now, keep in mind here, look at this. Jesus, who is God in flesh, Jesus, who is God in flesh and who is the epitome of holiness, accepted an invitation to go and to celebrate with this couple in this festive experience and to enjoy and to share in their happiness and the pleasure and the enjoyment of that festive event, which I think is just a great reminder because sometimes people have an odd idea. Uh, it is not unholy or sacrilegious in any way to celebrate at times or to have fun at times. You know, some people's concept of what it means to be holy or spiritual is to you know, suck on a lemon uh, and, and basically wear sackcloth and ashes and, and the more miserable we can look and the more, you know, somehow to laugh or to celebrate or to have fun is somehow unholy or unspiritual. Nothing further from the truth. Here's Jesus. His first wedding is at his attendance at a wedding celebration and basically enjoying himself with the festive experience. And they even danced at Jewish weddings. Maybe we should delete that from the tape. Or not tapes anymore. Shows how long I've been teaching the Bible. <laughs> used to be tapes, CDs, whatever, podcasts now. Again, Ecclesiastes tells us this. Ecclesiastes 3, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. And here's Jesus there celebrating with them. And let me make two other observations here from verse 1 and 2 and seeing Jesus invited to and attending this wedding here. I would say this. It's always a good thing to invite Jesus to be involved in a marriage. It's always a really good thing to do that, to invite Jesus to be involved in a marriage, to be, if you would, th that representation of recognizing marriage was God's idea. He designed the whole institution originally. This was God's plan. And perhaps, you, I'm sure you would agree, there would perhaps be less broken marriage relationships today if more couples in our world would consciously invite Jesus, invite the Lord 
to be a part of their marriage and their wedding and their relationship romantically as a husband and wife. Inviting Jesus' presence to be involved in a marriage relationship is a very wise and stabilizing and healthy thing to do. Again, the book of Ecclesiastes says that it's that threefold cord that's not easily broken. Again, that third cord is having the Lord intertwined in a relationship between two people. So I just say that to say, remember today, if you're still single, whether you're a single adult, whether you're a young person and marriage is in your future, please remember, it is good to invite Jesus. It's good to invite the Lord to be involved in your marriage, which means that for starters, you should probably have two people who have the presence of the Lord in their lives. If you don't have that, he's probably not being invited to the marriage. So invite Jesus into that marriage relationship. Be sure of that. Be wise from the start. And realize today, if you are now married, even if Jesus has not been or has never been a part of your marriage relationship, that does not mean that you can't still ask and invite for his presence to get involved now. Invite him into the marriage relationship. Even if your spouse doesn't want to, that's fine. Invite him into the marriage relationship because that is really the wisest thing you can do and he'll gladly accept the invitation and he'll become involved and his presence can begin to make a very big difference. The second thing I would say is this, is as we look at this section and what's going on here, I think you can see by way as well that whenever the presence of Jesus is invited to any situation, not just a marriage relationship, but you invite Jesus into any life situation, whatever it is that you're doing, the life activities involved, and invite Jesus into it, problems start to get resolved. And good things start to happen. And all of a sudden, things start to get better. That's what happens in the story. Because they invited Jesus, not just because it's a wedding, because Jesus was invited, problems got fixed. And things got better and better and better as things progressed. So whatever your life situation, whatever you're doing, whatever you're involved in, always consciously invite the Lord. Lord, be a part of this, your presence, your involvement in any way. So here they are at this wedding scene. Verse 3 now begins to unfold what happens. It says, and they ran out of wine. And the mother of Jesus came and said to him, they have no wine. Now, a major social and personal dilemma arises at this point, and Mary, it says, goes and informs Jesus about her concern. Now, again, to kind of sense the gravity of this, in that ancient culture, it would be a major embarrassment and a major social failure in any public gathering to run out of resources such as food and drink if you were hosting a social gathering. Now, add on to that, to run out of resources at a wedding celebration, that was an absolute catastrophe. It was a catastrophe. Understanding how culture worked, because weddings were so highly esteemed and they were a monumental event for a person and a family, and since you knew wedding celebrations lasted for extended days, typically up to a week, both the host family as well as the master of the feast, usually a master of ceremonies, they took very serious consideration of the fact that we have to make sure we have adequate resources to properly supply to festively enjoy this occasion with our guests for an extended period of time. 
And this was something that was critical to them. And remember, again, this is not today's thing. If supplies ran out, you couldn't just bolt over to the local Sam's Club. Do you understand? This was before the days of Sam's Club and Costco and, and just, oh, well, we ran out. Run over, grab some. You couldn't do that. This was a way in which this became something very catastrophic in this situation. And considering how the wedding practices happened, it was a huge undertaking. And imagine if you were a family who was struggling to just do your best to get by every day. There's a lot of pressure. So this was something, for whatever reason, the dilemma happens. It says, verse 3, they ran out of wine. And the bottom line is that could lead, you have to grasp, to incredible shame to a horrible stigma that could come upon a family in that day and age in a small village where, if you would, everybody knows one another. And the embarrassment of that, and not only that, the lingering complaints and the disgraceful failure and, and no doubt the stories that would linger where, in essence, oh, do you, do you remember the Guadalupe's marriage? Oh, oy vey, yeah. And do you remember that? How embarrassing. I mean, and, and this would be a horrible stigma in that culture. So this was just a very, very big thing. Whatever the cause, the basic situation at this point now is resources have run out. Resources have run out. And though they may have done what they could to supply on their own, it wasn't sufficient. It didn't last. It wasn't enough. They did their best, but they came up short, and now they can't even produce what they're in need of. And all of a sudden, they find themselves in a desperate place with a problem, and they have no way on their own to resolve their very severe problem. Ever been there before? Sound familiar? Where all of a sudden, whatever it is, the resources run out. Maybe you did your best to supply on your own, but it, it just wasn't sufficient. And though you even maybe made your best effort, you still came up short or things fell through or a dilemma came about. And now you know that you have a very severe problem on your hands and there's not even anything you can do personally to resolve that problem yourself. Listen, this is the situation here. All of a sudden, they're faced with a problem and they're realizing, oh my goodness, how are we going to resolve this? And Mary, perhaps probably knowing the wedding couple, maybe from verse 3, we get the sense as she sort of tries to initiate to help with some influence here. Look what she does, verse 3. She brings the concern to Jesus. Do you see what it says there? The Mary, the mother of Jesus, went and said to him, informing him, uh, they have no wine. In other words, they, they've ran out. This is a real problem. So she brings her concern to Jesus. Now, it's not known exactly what she's expecting of Jesus at this moment. Um, we can only speculate. Remember, at this point, Jesus has performed no public miracles yet. He hasn't started performing his signs and miracles in his messianic ministry because it's just began at this moment in time historically. It's possible maybe she, out of respect for Jesus and how often she began to realize in his life he had such incredible wisdom that when problems would arise, that the wisdom of God was with Jesus in such a way that he always seemed to have helpful advice maybe and good counsel when problems arose. Or maybe... Let's be a little more realistic with the mama-child relationship. Maybe Mary at this point, knowing Jesus, of course, is the Messiah, uh, like a typical proud mother, is just trying to give him a little nudge here to step into his destiny. Come on, son. I mean, we... <laughs> 
been 30 years. I mean, we know who you are. I mean, and you know, perhaps you're like a typical proud mother. I mean, you're proud when your son's a really good basketball player. Imagine he's the Messiah. I mean, you just, I mean, come on. I mean, just make mama proud here. They're out of wine. I'm not asking much here. So, I mean, so again, we don't know exactly why she's saying this, but maybe part of this, it's, it's a possibility, the natural relationship. Again, they were natural human relationships. She wants him to demonstrate who he is or, or even start his ministry and to begin to initiate that. Whatever the reasoning, here's the one thing that we do know. And the one thing that she did do right that we can commend her for she brought her concern to Jesus. That's the one thing you can say she did do right in this situation. She brought her concern to Jesus. And for all of us here this morning, despite the details of our dilemmas that we find ourselves in sometimes, or despite the details and what's happened of the dilemmas of maybe other people that we somehow become involved in because we're a part of their life or we want to help them out in some way. Whatever the details of the dilemma, whether it's your dilemma or someone else's dilemma you're trying to help, I can tell you this. The wisest thing you can do, first and foremost, it's always good to bring that concern to Jesus. To bring it to Jesus to bring it to the Lord, to inform him what's going on, to make him aware, to begin to ask for his involvement in some way. Well, verse 4 goes on in our story to say Jesus then responds to his being made aware of this by saying to his mother, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, through this event, we begin to see something here in verse 4. Now, Jesus seems to indicate to his birth mother Mary, who gave birth to him physically, a definite shift here now in his life as his public ministry is now beginning. Because from this point forward, as he's now received his water baptism, the initiation of the public ministry at this point, from this point forward, the focus of Jesus, we'll see as we go through the Gospel of John as well, is directly set upon doing things in light of and in connection with that special hour, and we'll see that phrase a lot, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not. Everything now Jesus is doing is in line with that special hour that the Father in heaven has set for him as a part of his eternal plan while being on the earth as the Messiah. So Jesus refers to his mother here, perhaps you notice there in verse 4, maybe you're even a little unsettled by it already, as woman. Now, that's hard because in today's day and age, uh, you know, we kind of use that term a little differently. It sounds almost a little sarcastic, you know, you know woman, what do you think you're doing, woman? I mean, and, and so we hear that and we think, whoa, I mean, this is his mom. I mean, where's the, where's the respect there? And, and, and we look at that and it almost sounds, again, we're translating from a original Greek language to an English language and there's always the challenges in that way it almost sounds a little cold and disrespectful yet this title that he uses is not an insult it's not condescending in the way that he's saying this to her culturally historians and rabbis both testify that there's no harshness or discourtesy in Jesus using that title it is, however, simply just a more formal term, like you might say lady. It's just more of a formal term that's used rather than an intimate term of close kinship. So Jesus says to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? The idea here Jesus is getting to is he's in essence saying, mom, I understand that you may be concerned, but I cannot simply act 
out of emotion alone because I am your earthly son. At this point now, my life purpose, and it requires me to honor a higher accountability to my Father in heaven who is directing my life and my steps from this point forward as I move towards that hour, that hour of my eternal purpose upon this earth. Again, because Jesus indeed, yes, was Mary's adult son biologically, but also because he's God and he's her Lord and he's the Messiah. It's at that point now we see Jesus at this stage of his earthly life if you would hear me by saying this, putting Mary into sort of a new relationship with him. A new relationship which is in essence as her Lord foremost spiritual rather than familial at this point. So because of that, as the Lord of her life, he begins to relate to her now as his public ministry begins by sort of not allowing himself to be persuaded or acting out of emotion alone to, to help his mama, though this is his mother, but helping her to begin to realize that things are transitioning in the divine plan and his messianic ministry is starting and he must honor the eternal hour of the Father in heaven. That that is what must direct his steps and what he does do and doesn't do and he must fully operate in conjunction with and submission to what the Father in heaven decides at this point. Again, Jesus is going to say things like John chapter 5, verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Again, Jesus, as he did things on earth, did everything as the Father determined. And as the Father decided, he says, I don't say anything on my own. I don't do anything on my own. I only do as the Father directs me. And that was the grid, if you would, that Jesus during his earthly life sifted everything through that he said and did what lined up with preparing for and cooperating with that set eternal hour whereby he would accomplish his redemptive plan. And as a result, we see this sort of necessary change now. And this is what verse 4 begins to indicate to us, this shift happening in the family dynamic of Jesus, who is both, remember, God and man at the exact same time. And Mary here no doubt understood exactly what was transpiring in the midst of this conversation. And she respected and indicated by her submission Jesus' lordship over her in her life look at verse 5 it goes on to say Mary then turns after hearing that and says to the servants that apparently were aware whatever he says to you do it Mary at this point having accepted the realities of what Jesus is saying to her understanding the indication of his lordship offers now this is what I'd say the best possible advice any human being could offer to another human being the best possible advice realizing that she is not supposed to be in charge and that she can't resolve things herself and let me just say as a little sidebar that there verse 5 are the last recorded words in scripture of Mary and what she's doing is saying to humanity whatever Jesus says do that and she's saying it because she has just come to realize I can't as an intermediator go to Jesus as his mama and force him to do things. So don't ask me to force Jesus to do things. I say that because we have some in the religious culture of this day that think that that's part of the way you get things done is to go through Mary to get to Jesus. 
we don't need to do that. The book of Acts, we find Mary the last time in the Bible, she's not being prayed to. She's with a group of believers praying to Jesus as someone who recognizes her lordship as well. So we have these last recorded words of Mary here. And she turns to the servants and says to them, whatever he says to you, do it. Again, best advice, best counsel right there, verse 5, a verse worthy of underlining in your Bible there. The best counsel anybody could give to anyone, whatever Jesus says, do it. Whatever, and again, the emphasis that Jesus says, whatever he says, because there may have been other people's ideas in that moment. And I think the emphasis there is well worthy to be upon whatever he says, do that. The idea is his idea, his direction trumps all other suggestions and ideas that we come up with. Because when your problems arise and my dilemmas arise, sometimes people have ideas and they have suggestions. I think you should do this. We think you should do that. And this would be the right way to handle this. And I think the better thing to realize is the best advice we can give to someone, even if we're trying to give helpful advice, say, but to say at the end of the day, but listen, but whatever Jesus says to you, whatever the Lord's saying to you, that's what you should do. Don't necessarily do what I'm saying. Don't necessarily do what other people are telling you. But whatever he says to you, his voice, his instruction idea should trump all others, especially when we're trying to work through problems in our lives. Listen to the Lord. Because he wants to talk to you. He will give you guidance. And Jesus will give you direction. Listen to his idea above all other ideas. And I think another way you could put the emphasis there is whatever Jesus says to you, perhaps maybe those last two words, like Nike would say, do it. <laughs> do it. When Jesus says something to you, do it. Act upon it. Don't just say, amen, yes, Lord. I sense what you're telling me. I sense what you're, what you're saying to me. No, do it. Once he's spoken to you, honor his lordship. Do what he says. Don't think twice about it. Do it obediently, whether it makes sense or not. Act obediently upon the direction of the Lord. That's always a very wise and safe thing to do. So great, great statement here. The Holy Spirit records for us in this very text here. If you're talking to or trying to help someone else solve a problem or find a solution for what they're working through, there's your line of counsel. If you have no other great line of counsel, maybe they share their problem, they lay it out, and you're just a really good listener. And you're thinking, I have absolutely no idea. No Bible text, no good counsel. I'm the worst counselor. But I do know this one sentence. Whatever Jesus says to you, just do that. That's the best counsel you can give to anybody. Or if you're working through your own life today and you're facing something or as you go through things, take that counsel right there from Scripture and let it resonate in your mind that the Holy Spirit always reminds you whatever he says to you, do that great counsel. Well, verse 6, our story continues by saying, Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of the purification of the Jews, containing, notice, 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So we now begin to see Jesus as he starts to work out a resolution in this situation to the problem at hand. These water pots were there because it says for purification practices that the Jews observed. Now what we know, again, whether it was washing of feet, that was customary, whether it was washing before meals, they also at times, if they were very orthodox, would even wash at times between courses. 
So there are these large stone vessels that are there and Jesus now uses, look at this, ordinary things to do an extraordinary work of God. Sometimes that's the way God works. He just uses ordinary things to do an extraordinary work. Verse 7 tells us that Jesus said to them, Go and look, fill the water pots with water. And they obeyed and went and filled them up to the brim. Now, filling water pots, and do you remember how big and how heavy it said they were? Filling water pots like that with water would not be an easy task for those servants. Again, keep in mind, you didn't just go around the back of the property and turn on the garden hose and just start filling the water pots. Uh, they would have to take these water pots and and draw the water up out of a well and then carry it back to the location they were at at the wedding feast or maybe to a nearby stream or river. And then look what it says as well from verse 6 there. Envision carrying these water pots. It says they were 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now that's pretty heavy. That little water cooler we have out in the back hallway there, the jug on top of that, that's a five-gallon water thing. Sometimes I have to get a little assistance because of my weakness to get one of those on there. Only one person thought that was funny. That's a joke. But that's pretty heavy, right? A five, gallon, a five gallons of water has got some weight to it. Now add five times that. Something that's 20 to 30 gallons of That's pretty heavy. That's a pretty heavy substantive amount of weight that these servants are having. So my point is, this was a lot of work, what Jesus asked them to do. It's a good thing, as the text says, that these were servants that Jesus asked to help him. Because it requires servants to be willing to help when things are not easy. And keep in mind as well in our story, Jesus is going to do a miracle. We know that, having read the text. Would you agree Jesus could have chosen very easily to just have miraculously filled those water pots with wine instantaneously? He could have done that. There was no need to do what he asked them to do. All by himself, without any human involvement or participation, he could have just miraculously filled them with wine instantaneously. But instead, Jesus chose to work in a way, look at it, that involved human participation. I like that. I like that. Jesus exercised his power through cooperative human assistance. Those who were willing to listen to his voice and listen to his request. Those who were willing to get involved and follow his leading and instruction and be servants willing to expend some energy and some of their time and some of their effort to help Jesus and to help those who were in need in that situation. And can I say this morning, that is often how Jesus, I believe, delights to work. It's amazing the fact that even God tells us to preach the gospel. God doesn't need us to preach the gospel. There's going to come a day, the Bible says in Revelation, when an angel is going to fly through the sky preaching the everlasting gospel. It's a privilege that God delights to use us as human beings to accomplish his work. But that's often how the Lord does work. At many a times, by his power, through the cooperative work of human vessels who are willing to be servants and listen to his voice, and how exciting to think that we get to be used of the Lord. That a lot of times when the Lord works powerfully, miraculously to this day, doing his wonders and helping people and solving problems, he involves human participation in the midst of that. And I would say this morning, don't overlook even ordinary and seemingly practical things that you sense the Lord may ask you to do on occasion or to help out in some way because maybe you go, I mean, that's not very glamorous. 
I mean, how glamorous was going and filling water pots? That doesn't seem very spiritual, but here's the deal, gang. We have no idea what the Lord may be up to. And maybe the Lord asks you to do something. You think, well, that's not very, that's not very glamorous. <laughs> it's not very spiritual. It seems kind of practical and, and, and not that, uh, you know, uh, perhaps holy, but the power of Jesus may just use that in an incredible way to do a miracle to solve some problem or to help some person or to fulfill something that he wants to do. So don't diminish the ways in which the Lord may want to use you. Listen to his voice and if he asks you to become involved in something, listen to his voice, follow his leading, be willing to serve. So they, it says, go and do what Jesus asked. Verse 8 says, Jesus then told them to draw some out and take it over to the master of the feast. That is the, the master of the ceremonies who would be coordinating the festivities and they took it over to him. So he instructs them now to take a sample of what they just drew, this water, and to bring it over to the master of the feast to taste, because he would always taste before it would then be served to the guests. Now, we don't know what unfolds here. It almost seems the master of the feast or master of ceremonies maybe was totally oblivious to the fact that he even ran out of wine, because of all people, he would be hyper-concerned. And it seems that they're now going with this water that's miraculously been turned into wine to go over and let him sample it. At some point, this miracle has happened. Did it happen as soon as they filled the water pots? Did it happen when they drew it out? We don't know, but it seems the master himself of the ceremonies is not even aware and they now take this sample over to him and it says, verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted that water that was made wine... And did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called over the bridegroom hosting the wedding and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you, he says shockingly, have kept the good wine until now. So as the master of ceremonies tastes this sample of this next wine batch that's to be set forth for the guests from these vessels, notice that he's pleasantly surprised how superior the quality is of this particular wine that he just tasted before it served to the guests. Verse 9 indicates that as he's tasting this miraculous wine that had just come from this water, it says there, look at it, that he did not know where it came from, but the servants knew. He didn't know where it came from, but the servants knew. He had no idea the source of where this incredibly superior wine had just come from. He was oblivious of what the Lord had done. He was unaware that it was a miracle of the power of God and that it was Jesus who had supplied and done this wonderful thing that he's now enjoying. But yet the servants who helped, they knew exactly what was going on. They knew exactly this is a miracle of the Lord. This is all his provision and where it came from. And again, as we get involved and serve the Lord and he uses us, this is so often the case. Is it not true that the Lord does something as he uses people in some way to serve and Jesus uses you to serve and he powerfully works in a way whereby people are blessed and they're helped in some special way. And the reality is, here's it is, people have no idea how very little it had to do with us and how much it had to do with Jesus. And just like in this story, the humble servant always knows how miraculous everything that just happened as the people were served and blessed, 
how it was the power of Jesus that performed it all. And how very, very little and small of a part it was of what we did. And we know where the miraculous provision came from. They might not know it, but we know it. And we know, I can tell you this. You want to know why it's so wonderful? Because it was all Jesus behind it. It was all Jesus that did it and performed it and put his miraculous hand upon it. And that's the reason why it becomes so wonderful. We'll look at the master's evaluation there in verse 10. As he tastes this wine, he then unknowingly compliments the bridegroom, the host, for doing what seemed very uncultural, but very gracious, and if you would, rather kind. He says to him, wow, this is incredible, tasty. Every man usually puts out the beginning, the good wine, and then when the guests have well drunk, then they put out the inferior, but he says, you've kept the good wine until this point. Now, what was considered good wine? Well, I can tell you this. First of all, culturally, in that day and age, wine was watered down and diluted with water, typically two parts of wine to three parts of water. We have to remember as well, in Jewish culture, drunkenness was viewed as a disgrace. It was viewed as extremely shameful. Yes, it was genuine wine. I won't diminish the reality. That is what it was. And they drank wine regularly in that culture. Typically, ordinary wine was two parts wine, three parts water. That was considered good wine. And as we see here from verse 10, there was this typical protocol when you served wine at a wedding celebration. Quite savvy the way that they did this. It says here in verse 10, typically they would provide the good, valuable wine as the guests were first arriving. The best quality came out first. Then once everybody's senses were, were lowered a little bit, and they were distracted by the festivities and the celebration and they weren't quite paying attention as much. Then they'd bring out the inferior wine or the, the cheap wine, you know, the Costco version or whatever other wine. They bring out the cheap stuff afterwards and, and cheap wine or the inferior wine was just more watered down in its ratios. But typically then people didn't notice. Now, to do that, put out the good first and then substitute the inferior later on, was perceived as good stewardship because, number one, it spared, guess what? Money. And it also spared from people getting crazy drunk at the weddings because the inferior wine was even more diluted and watered down. And it kept the disgrace and the shame from people becoming unnecessarily drunk and out of control at a wedding celebration. So, shockingly, this master of ceremonies, he tastes this wine in the next vessel that's brought over that Jesus has just created that is so superior in its quality and so good. He, he says, wow, you, you've saved the best wine until now. Now, I know the question arises, was this wine Jesus created? Was it of strong alcoholic content? I have no idea. Truthfully, to be very candid, I don't think that's the point of the story here. I don't think that's the most important thing. And, and let me just say, if that's your primary concern in the text, I think maybe your priority's in the wrong place. If you look at a passage of scripture like this, you're almost somewhat missing the point. And I would say, be careful if you're wanting to go through the Bible and use a spot like this to, to almost kind of manipulatively justify you're drinking of alcohol to some extent by, by this passage of scripture, by kind of taking the reasoning of the main point of the story. Well, Jesus created wine for people. So, hallelujah. 
well, I, yeah, and just be, be careful. I'm just I don't think that's good exegesis of the context of why the Holy Spirit records this scripture for us. And quite honestly, because I don't even really want to address in a portion of scripture like this the reality of Christians and liberty and drinking alcohol because I really don't think that's the context or the point of the passage here. The point of what is being indicated and that we shouldn't miss, the bottom line in this event is the quality of what they tasted of what Jesus created, which may be was alcohol-free and tasted incredible. It was the quality of the wine that was so superior. Basically, listen, that when the person tasted it, they said, wow, your wine was good at the beginning. Listen, but you saved the best for last. You saved the best for last. Because see, that's the pattern of how Jesus works. Jesus works in this way. Things are always good to begin, but Jesus is still saving the best for last he's saving the best for the end with Jesus things only get better and better heaven and the marriage supper of the lamb is the best experience yet he's saving the best for last eternity and the glory of heaven the world does things exactly opposite doesn't it the world makes themes scenes look so good up front they put out the good stuff first and then they draw people in with the bait of making things seem so wonderful and then they yank the hook into people's mouth and cause people all of a sudden to be drawn into the misery and the consequences of sinful living and people who get drunk with the ways of the world end up with an inferior life down the road. When the exact opposite is true with Jesus Christ, by drinking of what Jesus offers and creates and supplies, the love and the goodness of God does the exact opposite. By drinking deeply of what Jesus supplies, he works in your life wonderfully and seeks to bring you a good life now and then it just keeps on getting better. And ultimately it culminates in being able to experience the very best at the end. Eternity, heaven, the glory of spending our presence with God forever and ever and ever. Well, verse 11 concludes by saying this was the beginning of signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So John, by the spirit of God, writing informs us this is the first miraculous sign Jesus did as he now begins to reveal his glory, the glory as the son of God. And it says as a result of these events, verse 11 there, his disciples believed in him now they already believed in him and were already following him the indication here the language is they believed in him more deeply they more further believed in him it was the if you would the wow factor of this moment now of what jesus just did in this miracle of transformation that made them if you would have their belief grow wow and they believed in him more deeply. They believed in him more sincerely. They grew in their faith in Jesus because that's often what Jesus seeks to do. He works in ways to keep increasing our faith in his credibility, in his power, in the things that he does. Notice the Holy Spirit tells us in verse 11 here that this specific miracle, it's referred to there as a sign. This is the first signs that Jesus did. 
purposeful language there. A sign is an indicator of something, right? When you drive down the road, a sign indicates something. It points to something. It reveals or shows something. I think God is trying to say to us, Jesus did not just do this little miracle at this wedding, per se, just because the refreshments ran out. And oh my goodness, they're out of chips and dip. Better do something. Now's a great time. Yes, Jesus is compassionate. He helps solve problems. But there was a bigger reason. There was a larger purpose behind this. It was a sign to indicate something. And I can summarize it for you like this. It indicated this. Jesus is in the business of transformation. Jesus is in the business of transformation. It does not matter what the dilemma, what the problem, who the person is. Jesus, who turns water into wine to solve problems, Jesus is in the transformation business. He wants to transform your life. You don't be discouraged this morning. I don't care who you are or where you've been or what's going on. Jesus can transform your life. He can change you. He wants to help you and change you. And when you look at others, realize Jesus can transform lives. It's what his heart is. We have to be open to that. Let's stand. Let's pray together.